Dr. Staub and Dr. Pavlo. Yes. Hello. How are you guys doing today? I think we're recording now. Okay. So, welcome to the APTA's Neurology Section Vestibular Special Interest Group's October podcast. My name is Dr. Ethan Hood. I'm a physical therapist from the Warren Hospital Balance Center in Phyllisburg, New Jersey. Our topic for the podcast is visual vertigo. We have two very distinguished panel members with us today. We have Dr. Jeffrey Staub from the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota and Dr. Marusa Pavlou from King's College London, England. First of all, thank you both for coming here today. Uh, Dr. Staub, could you give us a brief history of your background? Sure. I'm a psychiatrist at Mayo Clinic, um, and I've worked um, with patients with uh, vestibular complaints for about 14 years, first at the University of Pennsylvania, now here at Mayo Clinic. Uh, when I was in medical school, I did uh, had, had a good fortune of doing research in vestibular physiology, and that's how I first got interested in um, vestibular problems. Great. And Dr. Pavlo, could you give us a brief history in your background as well? Yes. Um, I'm a physical therapist who studied in Greece and then came to the United Kingdom to do my doctor under Professor Bronstein at Imperial College London, who is a vestibular expert and brought me into um, the vestibular world and visual vertigo. And I've been involved working with patients with vestibular disorders and in research in vestibular impairments, and particularly visual vertigo for the last 11 years. Great, great. Well, the first question for both of you is, is what exactly is visual vertigo? When someone says they have visual vertigo, what exactly does it mean? Well, I'm going to let Dr. Pavlou go first since she's working at, with the group that, that uh, originally described visual vertigo. Sure. Okay. Visual vertigo is a term used to describe symptoms of dizziness, disorientation, and or postural stability, which patients with a peripheral vestibular disorder may experience in situations involving visual vestibular conflicts, such as walking down supermarket aisles or intense visual motion watching widescreen movies. Now, in a way, visual vertigo is, is a bit of a misnomer because patients don't actually experience vertigo. And other terms that have been used are space and motion discomfort, visual vestibular mismatch, um, as well as motor disorientation syndrome. And recently, the Classification Committee of the Baroness Society describes it simply as visually induced dizziness. Okay. Well, are certain groups of people more predisposed to developing visual vertigo? Uh, Dr. Pavel, I believe you can answer that one as well. Okay. In terms of the patients, we're not quite sure in the patients who have a, a cybernitis, for example, who have visual vertical, we're not sure if they're patients who were more visually dependent prior to the onset of their vestibular disturbance mm -hmm. or if it's something that came on afterwards. There's a study that's been done in patients who had a vestibular anectomy and they found that those who tended to be surface dependent prior to the surgery became visually dependent post and vice versa. We're not sure that's happening in visual vertical, but we do know that patients who have bilateral vestibular failure in the first two years after their bilateral loss are more visually dependent, have more visual vertigo symptoms, as do patients with migraine. Does visual vertigo happen with everyone with a vestibular pathology, or is it only a certain group of people or a certain number? No, it doesn't happen in everyone with a vestibular pathology. We see many patients. We don't know exactly what the prevalence of visual vertigo is. We do see a large number of our patients, and certainly our chronic patients, our patients who've had symptoms um, for six months or years prior to coming to us, 
tend to have a higher level of visual vertigo symptoms, but we definitely not everyone with vestibular pathology has visual vertigo. There's a study currently being done um, by Professor Dr. Bronstein's group, and they've been looking at patients as they come into the emergency department with these acute symptoms, and they've seen that patients who tend to continue to experience symptoms at six months are those who have um, visual vertigo or somatization symptoms. Dr. Staub, is, is there... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oops. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Ethan. I, I would like to just take a chance to expand just a little bit on um, visual vertigo because we think of visual vertigo as a symptom rather than a diagnosis. Okay. Um, and I, I, I absolutely agree with Dr. Pavlou that it is very frequently triggered by um, a vestibular event, a vestibular acute vestibular crisis, or or even recurrent vestibular conditions, um, including migraine. Um, but we, what we most often see visual vertigo as one of the symptoms of uh, chronic subjective dizziness, what we've called chronic subjective dizziness here, what, the, what Thomas Brandt's group in, in Germany has called phobic postural vertigo. Um, and so in addition, and so visual vertigo is a very prominent symptom of that syndrome, but along with that, it's also a sense of postural, and, uh, a postural related unsteadiness and dizziness. So patients who feel even when standing still and not in a high motion environment that they are unsteady. Again, not true spinning vertigo, but a sense of, of swaying or rocking unsteadiness um, or a nonspecific type of, of, of a sense of spatial disorientation. Patients will often say, I just don't feel quite right. My, my sense of space just isn't quite right. And so, I, and so we, when, when we take a, a complete history of the patient's complaints, we oftentimes find that those symptoms of postural unsteadiness as well as the visual vertigo symptoms. Is there a high correlation? I bring that up is because is because there have been a number of research studies that have shown that um, that non-vestibular events can also trigger um, visual vertigo and chronic subjective dizziness symptoms, and these and and and, um, and those can include panic attacks in which patients become intensely lightheaded um, while they're hyperventilating with a panic attack. They can include other acute medical events that disturb balance, such as syncopal or presyncopal events. So I, I think that um, to get back to Dr. Pavlou's comments about the, the change in visual versus uh, somatosensory dependency, it seems that, that one of the things that may be a trigger for this set of symptoms, the visual vertigo, postural unsteadiness, chronic subjective dizziness symptoms, is an acute disturbance in postural control, whether that be from the vestibular side, um, from the cardiovascular side, or from other events that that that, per, that provoke an acute disturbance in in an individual's sense of balance. And and if and if we look at um, patients um, who go on to chronic vestibular symptoms after after an, or yeah, chronic unsteadiness and dizziness after an acute vestibular event. That's about 25% of patients after uh, BPPV or um, vestibular neuritis. Those have been some uh, uh, prospective studies done in Germany mm -hmm. showing that about 25% of patients will go on for at least, at least several months um, to have these types of symptoms. And um, patients who um, have... Um, an anxious or precise type of temperament uh, seem to be more likely. Um, they are the ones who, who, 
who have a persistent focus on symptoms, as Dr. Pavlou mentioned, a persistent focus on symptoms in the immediate aftermath of their acute vestibular crisis, and they seem to, to retain that focus and, and in doing so um, become more sensitized to uh, visual motion cues. That, that was my next question, actually. Are there, are there certain psychological conditions that are highly correlated to visual vertigo? Well, I think the first important thing is that visual vertigo, chronic subjective dizziness, phobic postural vertigo are not psychiatric symptoms okay. or, or syndromes. Um, they may have a behavioral component to it that, that, that with this sort of sensitization process, but they really are not psychiatric symptoms. They can absolutely exist in the complete absence of diagnosable psychiatric disorders. Um, and, so, and so it's often, oftentimes, um, patients will be considered to have psychogenic dizziness because their symptoms seem not to be related to an ongoing vestibular uh, uh, dysfunction. But this, this really is a brain phenomenon that is not psychiatric in nature. Okay. Um, now, that doesn't mean that there's no behavioral part to it, but, you know, walking on the edge of a cliff, we change our balance, and that's behavioral um, versus, you know, walking down a, 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 a you know, a, a um, you know, an, an open and uh, sidewalk. So, so I think that um, that when we say that somebody may be predisposed because they have an anxious, precise temperament, that's a, that's that's a variation on normal. That's not an abnormal state. Um, and um, patients with visual vertigo, or patients, many patients can have visual vertigo without psychiatric diagnosis. But the rates of anxiety disorders are higher um, okay. in patients who have chronic subjective dizziness or phobic postural vertigo. The um, and so, um, uh, and so the, the comorbidity is higher, but it's not a cause. Okay. Dr. Pavlou, are there any special tests for visual vertigo, or is it more just a clinical diagnosis that goes along with if, if someone had an acute uh, vestibular issue? There is very much a clinical diagnosis with the history, and it's asking the right questions if the patient um, doesn't come out with the with saying that they feel worse in, in busy environments or watching the computer screen or watching visual motion on the television. In the UK, we hear a lot of our patients saying they can't watch the weather uh, on the BBC channel. But to quantify the severity of the visual vertigo and to um, understand if there's a high level of visual vertigo that perhaps we need to look at more specifically within our rehabilitation, there is the situational characteristics questionnaire. It's a very short questionnaire. There's 19 items on it. It asks how frequently patients experience symptoms in environments like walking down a supermarket aisle, driving over the brow of a hill, watching moving scenes, or waiting on the train platform. And it's very easy to, to score it as well. And scores 0 0.7 and above are considered to be indicative of visual vertigo. There's also the rod and disc test, the perceptual test of visual vertigo, whereby patients are asked to sit in front of a rotating disc. Mm -hmm. The disc rotates clockwise or counterclockwise at 30 degrees per second, and the patients are asked to align a fluorescent line to vertical in the presence of these moving dots in darkness. And patients who have visual vertigo tend to offset the line to a greater extent, and that really comes to what visual vertigo, in, in terms of what happens um, posturally or multi-sensory, is they're coming to rely too much. Patients who have visual vertigo are relying too much on visual cues, 
for both perception and postural responses, thereby the rod and disc, which they have to set their line to vertical in the presence of this very busy environment, is very disorientating for them, and therefore they offset it to a greater extent. So, Dr. Stott. Oh, sure. Go ahead, Dr. Sure. Stott. I think I think that I, I think that there's several things that I, that Dr. Pavlou said that I just wanted to emphasize because because they're they're really very helpful for identifying this. And the first is that we look at um, complex motion environments. So when people are in situations where there's a lot going on around them, or in situations where the decor is going to be complex. So in hotels that have very very heavily patterned wallpaper. Casinos, or things like that. Patterns. Um, and then precision visual activities, watching TV, using a computer, reading. A lot of patients will, will even even in those situations where they seem, they say, well, I'm just still, I'm just reading. But the, the precise nature of the demand of reading can be enough for some patients to, to, in, to increase their symptoms as well. Okay. And then, and then you know the, the the questionnaires and so forth are a nice reminder um, for both us and patients of, um, to help to broaden our history taking um, and make sure that we don't miss this this type of a symptom. Because a lot of times patients, unless you ask the specific questions, patients will just say, "Well, I'm dizzy. I'm just dizzy when I'm I'm just dizzy in different places," and they won't necessarily give the type of precision that we want to identify this. So, so what exactly is the best practice treatment for visual vertigo then? Is it, is it psychiatric counseling? Is it medication? Is it physiotherapy? Is it a combination of, of all, all of them to treat the patient? Or Well, let me, let me tackle the, um, the, the, the medication and psychotherapy end, and then mm-hmm. I'm going to let Dr. Pavlou talk to, about the physical therapy part. Um, so, again, when we, in almost every patient that we see with, with, with established visual vertigo, they have the other symptoms of uh, chronic subjective dizziness. And so our, our, almost always our diagnosis is chronic subjective dizziness. It's, it's really pretty rare that we make an isolated diagnosis of visual vertigo. Okay. And the reason I bring that up is because the, um, the data on um, psychotherapy and the data on medications are really a, about the diagnosis of chronic subjective dizziness and not visual vertigo okay. per se. So from a medication standpoint, there have been five open-label trials conducted in the United States and in Japan um, using the, um, the SSRI family of antidepressants. Those are the antidepressants, fluoxetine, sertraline, and others. Mm-hmm. They go by trade names Prozac, uh, Zoloft, Paxil, um, and so forth. There are six medications in, in that family. All six have been used in, in these five trials. None of them are better than the other, so they really are equivalent. Um, and they have um, they, they they can reduce the chronic subjective dizziness symptoms, including the visual vertigo component, um, in um, to to a great extent. So, on average, um, um, of, for, of, for for people who can take the medicines, and some people just don't tolerate them, but among patients who can take them, um, there's a positive response um, in. Um, four out of five patients, so an 80% an 80 response among those who are able to take the medications for eight to 12 weeks. Um, and that response is sustained then, and we usually treat patients for a minimum of one year. Okay. Um, the, the, um, there, have been, we, there are other medications in the antidepressants family that we also use, so the, um, the FNRI, or Effexor, and, or the, the um, generic venlafaxine or duloxetine family, also called Effexor and Cymbalta. Um, we use those. There are a couple of smaller trials that support their use. Um, we 
have moved away from older strategies of using things like um, Valium or uh, Clonopin, um, diazepam or clonazepam, to treat this, um, in, in part because it's tr it, it oftentimes for patients is trading one problem for another one, okay. and that is that they may have a suppression of some of their vestibular or visual symptoms, mm -hmm. um, but they but they can trade that for being sluggish either physically or mentally, and we do have a concern in some data to suggest that when we do, do physical therapy, which is one of the mainstays of treatment for this, when we do the physical therapy, that being on a vestibular suppressant can delay or, mm -hmm. or reduce the, in, the benefits that patients can get. Okay. The, and now if we switch over to the psychotherapy part, there's the best study of psychotherapy for chronic subjective dizziness um, was, done in, um, was done in Sweden at um, the University of Lund, and um, what they found was that there were short-term benefits from cognitive behavioral therapy, but those benefits were not sustained at one-year follow-up. So our practice is not to recommend psychological treatments for uh, chronic subjective dizziness or visual vertigo, mm -hmm. um, rather focusing on the physical therapy treatments and medications. The, the only time we recommend psychotherapy is if patients have a very clear um, coexisting depressive or, or uh, anxiety disorder. So it's not okay. for the visual vertigo or chronic subjective dizziness itself. Dr. Pavel, what's the best practice treatment for visual vertigo from a physical therapy standpoint? From a physical therapy standpoint, for, to treat visual vertigo, remember that um, these patients are patients with chronic subjective dizziness or a vestibular neuritis or migraine-associated vertigo, and we need to take that into consideration that we need vestibular rehabilitation, we need customized vestibular rehabilitation plus specific exposure to visual motion for the visual vertigo component. We don't do one without the other, and what we will need to do with the patient is first we, we start with a customized vestibular rehabilitation program with adaptation exercises, mm -hmm. balance exercises, um, eye head coordination, movement uh, exercises, and then once we're starting to see improvements there, to start bringing in the visual motion exposure, which gradually increases and becomes more complex. Okay. And that's how we get the best results for these patients. When we developed a DVD with black and white, rotate, black and white moving stripes and a rotating disc, uh, disc rotating with multiple colored dots, after we finished the study, um, some people had started giving out the DVD on its own. And on its own, it was just too much, too soon for the patients. As soon as they were being diagnosed, they were given the CVD, and mm -hmm. that's not the right approach. We need vestibular rehabilitation. We need to start seeing improvements on the physical exercise and then gradually bring in the visual motion. In terms of what the visual motion should be, we can use something like the DVD recorded from clinical equipment in our autology department, black and white striped curtains mm -hmm. uh, on the test. What I find very useful in clinic now is videos. Um, so I will go to YouTube, type in walking along Oxford Street, and you will get 20 videos, and some of them are fantastic. You put them widescreen television. You ask patients to do exercises in sitting, standing, walking, looking back and forth from one part of the image to the other. Hmm. You can do um, exercises with videos like walking through Winn-Dixie or... Some patients will say, when I'm driving on the highway, and I will ask them specifically which highways they're driving on and find videos of that and incorporate that into their program. 
symptomatic of black and white patterns, but they need to be, initially they can be stationary because as Professor Stubbs said, they, patients, it's not necessarily just the movement, it's the, the complex patterns can do it, the, the black and white stripes, the diagonals, the, the colored carpet patterns. Mm -hmm. So you can start with a stationary background, but in order to get maximum improvement, it then needs to move to a moving background. And if you, the person doesn't have access to a computer within their home, you can print off uh, some black and white striped patterns for them and ask them to do exercises, sitting, standing, and walking when they're looking at those patterns stationary and then moving while they're walking. They can move the pattern left, right, and up and down half a meter in front of them. And that's the, the most effective treatment for visual vertigo at the moment from a physical therapist's point of view. Now, when you're using the, the television screen, how big of a screen do you have to use? Can it be a, a small screen, or does it have to be a fairly large widescreen TV to get in your, your peripheral vision into play as well? Very good question. It's, we thought originally that the larger the screen, the better. But we just sent uh, for publication a study we did where we compared a full field visual motion stimulation, it's called an optokinetic boule from a company uh, from Mural in France. And it's a very intense uh, full field rotating square pattern stimulation. We compare that to using the DVD I previously described with the black and white stripes and the rotating disc on a 20 inch TV. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the patients at home were only practicing the exercises on their laptop. There was actually no significant differences between using the full field optokinetic stimulation and the 20-inch television. So it's not, the, the size of it doesn't matter. And if we look at the fMRI studies with optokinetic stimulation, looking at um, visual cortex excitability, we get the similar responses in terms of what's happening, whether someone is using small or large field stimulation. And we believe that's why we didn't see any significant differences between using a full field versus a small field stimulation in our study. What I do believe may be playing a role is that the improvements we saw with this study for visual vertigo in an eight-week period, which is, is not um, a, a full rehabilitation problem, I would expect in order to complete rehab in patients, particularly with visual vertigo, we need at least a period of about six months, five to six months. And to get them to that 80, 90%, which we, we, we would like to see. When we're doing the eight weeks, we got 33%. In a previous study we did, we had patients coming in twice a week compared to the once a week in this study, but we also had them looking at different types of stimulation. So they weren't only looking at rotating, they were looking at the optokinetic drum, they were looking at the room being moved up and down, upside down, so they had a variety of optokinetic stimulation, and the improvement in that study in the eight weeks was 55%. And mm -hmm. the next step is to see whether using various types of stimulation will have a greater effect. It's not so much the size. I think it's the variety of stimulation that we're using that may be the, the bigger factor. Do you recommend using other stimuli like disco balls or color wheels as well to uh, stimulate optokinetic stimulation as well, or are they too much stimulation for most patients? I think the disco balls, the, the one we use, the full field one now, the, the framural, the bull, is, is a disco ball um, and giving up these patterns. We did find that it, that it is very intense. Mm -hmm. um, and 
I think the ones that are sold though in uh, that can be bought off the shelf uh, in in the UK they cost about fifty pounds to around seventy dollars. Those won't have the same intensity, so they should be okay to use and the color wheels. I think it's important to be creative in terms of what we use with the visual motion, but it needs to be structured. So we can use the optokinetic bulb. I don't think it'll be too intense uh, as long as, again, we start at slower speeds, gradually increase the speed, gradually increase the time of exposure, gradually introduce head movement, progress from sitting to standing to walking, therefore then it won't be too much. Do you, do you find that, that many of your patients are also taking medication for the visual vertigo as well? They're not, and when Professor Stubb was saying that the SSRIs are, are being used in the patients with chronic obstructive disease and it's improving the visual vertigo, I think it would be very nice to do a study where we're combining what we know at the moment is the most effective physical therapy treatment with the SSRIs because in the United Kingdom, a lot of these patients, unless they have an additional um, elevated depression or anxiety, they will not have medication um, provided to them. In the patients of migraine-associated dizziness, who we thought originally this treatment would be too intense for because we know that black and white patterns can uh, actually provoke migraine, we found, and this was in patients with treated migraine, we found that they could tolerate optokinetic exposure, and they actually had greater improvements compared to the patients who didn't have migraine, and we believe that the medication they were taking for their migraine allowed them to tolerate the exposure more, leading to greater improvement. So I do believe that possibly the future would be combining the optokinetic exposure, particularly for the UK, where it's not done with, with the medication. Dr. Staub, do you find that someone who is already predisposed to anxiety or, or panic um, after they've already been through vestibular therapy, are they more likely to possibly have a relapse of visual vertigo in the future? Or is it something that... Well, that that's a good question, and I, I can't say that we have research data on that. Um, the, the data that we have that speaks most closely to that is in, in one of the treatment, the, one of the medication trials, um, we followed patients for a year and they maintained their gains on medication, and, 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 um, and we treated them for that year with medication. Okay. Um, our, what, we, what we generally do with regard to both the medications and the physical therapy is, um, is, to, is, to, is, to, is to encourage patients to use them if they're, ta if they're doing one or the other or both. Um, and we generally say patients have to do the physical therapy. They can take the medication. Mm -hmm. um, unless they have a you know very very severe level of depression or anxiety, and then we encourage them to do both. Um, but um, but what we what we try to do is get patients to the point where they really are in remission before we back down on either of the treatments. Okay. Um, we have a lot of patients, especially who want to stop the stop the two treatments. They don't want to continue to do their exercises on a daily basis, mm -hmm. or they don't want to continue to take the medication on a daily basis. So there's a lot of patients who want to push to to get to to stop their treatment, and and we really and we really tell them that the quickest way to no treatment is to use as much treatment as necessary to get their symptoms in full remission. Mm -hmm. Because if they try and stop their treatments before they're in full remission then the relapse is really pretty likely. Mm -hmm. no, that, that, that's good advice. Now, how long... And to add on to that, I, I agree with that completely, and we, we do say to 
patients before, even if they're feeling much better, that they have to come to their follow-up appointment. Uh, we need to do an advanced assessment to make sure that they're able to do the more advanced exercises. And before discharging, I think it's very important to see that your patients aren't just doing well with the exercise and the visual motion, but they're actually back to their daily activities. They're not avoiding any of these environments anymore and that they're feeling comfortable in them. And I think if you don't make sure that they are comfortable in, in these environments that actually provoke their symptoms or with the patterns, um, then we haven't actually gotten them to, to the stage where it's less likely that they'll go into um, a relapse of, of the visual symptoms because it, there may be more symptoms that we need to treat that we're just not aware of because they haven't exposed themselves to those situations. Hmm. Okay. Right, and, and to, to follow up on that, I, I, I encourage patients, I patients say, well, why, why do I have to do this for a year? I'm feeling better. And I'll ask them, I'll say, and oftentimes ask one of their family members who are in the office, is he or she, the patient, is he or she getting into and out of the car the way, the way they used to? Do they walk up and down the hall the way that they used to? Um, do they stand in the middle of the room the way they used to? And what I'm, at, what I'm looking for in asking those questions is to see if the patients are still using little safety maneuvers. Mm -hmm. So the person who stands up but puts their hand down on the couch that they're standing next to or who walks along the side of the hallway so that they're close to the wall rather than down the middle, mm -hmm. or somebody who goes to the grocery store, but even if they're just getting three or four things, they take a cart and use it as a little bit of a walker. Um, so if they're still doing those kinds of things, then they have to, they ha they, then, then we incorporate as part of their physical therapy um, the removal of all those safety maneuvers. And that's where a family member or a friend can be really pretty helpful because they can usually spot some of those things that are still happening. And those, those all have to be undone too um, because um, they represent subtle changes in the deployment of balance reflexes um, and, um, and indicate that the person's not all the way um, improved. Okay. Now, now from, from both your standpoints, you can answer individually. On average, how long does it take, if ever, for someone to recover from visual vertigo, recover from the symptoms of visual vertigo? Dr. Staub, you want to go first? Uh, sure. I, what, what we tell patients is they can expect noticeable and sustained improvement in about 8 to 12 weeks. Okay. But that, you know, they may have to go, and I agree with what Dr. Pavlou said earlier, they may have to go longer than that, a good, a good three to six months, to recapture their life, and that's I mean, we use that term. We want you now to go and recapture your life, take back your life. All the things that you used to do, we want you to go and take them back again. Um, and the, and um, and I think the one thing that we have to be mindful of in, in patients is that initially we all thought that visual vertigo and chronic subjective dizziness were sequelae to events that were past. Mm -hmm. So somebody had neuronitis developed chronic subjective dizziness. We, we, we now have now have been able to see more and more that these conditions can arise in patients with, with ongoing neurologic dis disorders like migraine, like Meniere's disease. Um, and so part of what we have to judge in, in how somebody's recovering is how well, un how well are those other conditions under control. Okay. So if it's chronic subjective dizziness that has, that was due to a clear past event, then we really think substantial improvement in eight to 12 weeks, really good improvement at the six month mark with continued, continued care out to the end of a year um, is a very reasonable time frame. Okay, Dr. Pavlou? 
I would agree with that. Um, what we will say to the patients is between, on average, between three to six months, but it can take longer. It can take up to a year. In those that were going longer and going up to a year, it's in those patients, for example, who either aren't really adhering to the exercises, are um, very worried about uh, letting go of their safety maneuvers and, and going into these, these busy situations, and the migraineurs. When the migraine is not controlled, um, then it's very difficult to get a sustained improvement in their visual vertigo symptoms and for them to tolerate the, the visual motion exposure sufficiently so that we can see the improvement. Um, but when we don't have those factors, then three to six months, usually closer to the six-month period. Okay, great. I would say there's one other group of patients that are probably the most difficult to treat, and that is patients who develop these symptoms after a traumatic brain injury. Mm -hmm. um, that's probably a different process than what we're talking about. How about a stroke or um, other issue? Any type of central pathology is it generally um, more I'm difficult? Not, not so much. I mean, I mean, yes, a central. Any any ongoing central problem. There's a difference though between someone with post-concussive syndrome and, and the stroke. I mean, the, the but you're but you're right. You're right, uh, Ethan. I think that that some, that that folks who have these symptoms arise from a central central um, uh, process um, are going to be a little bit more difficult. Fortunately, patients, many patients do have um, good recoveries after after strokes, um, for reasons that aren't entirely clear. Um, there is a group of, a group of patients who have had traumatic brain injuries who seem to really really struggle for a long time with these symptoms and are exquisitely sensitive to, to any interventions that we give them, whether it be medications or physical therapy. So, so they're they're also ones in which we're going to be persistent but um, really slow and gradual. Okay. Well, Dr. Stahl, Dr. Pavlou. Oh, sorry, Dr. Pavlou, go ahead. I was just going to say with the stroke patients, we're currently looking at visual dependency in acute stroke and in chronic stroke and looking at how these symptoms of visual vertigo or this over-reliance on the eyes for balance mm -hmm. affects them when they're walking outdoors in the real environment. And we're trying to look at the effect of optokinetic stimulation within a multi-sensory balance program. One other thing I just wanted to mention in terms of the physical therapy um, and in the patients with traumatic brain injury or older subjects particularly is that the very first thing we need to do um, when they have these symptoms, when they're over-relying on their eyes, is look at their walking pattern. Many of them will be looking down at the ground mm -hmm. when we're walking, and the very first thing we need to do is get them looking out at the horizon. Mm -hmm. um, the visual information is too much for them. They're focusing too much on their eyes. They're using their eyes to tell them where they are in space. Mm -hmm. We need them looking ahead before we do anything else mm -hmm. with them. Good advice. Good advice. Well, Dr. Staub, Dr. Pavlou, from everyone at the Vestibular Special Interest Group, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Um, just to let everyone know out there that in November of this year, the topic will be neuroplasticity in vestibular rehab. So thank you very much for coming today. We're quite welcome. Thanks, Pleasure, and thank you for the invitation. Thanks. Bye-bye.